The following program was made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Exploring the Human Endeavor. It's often overlooked, but American women were critical in the Vietnam War. Between 30,000 and 50,000 military and civilian women served in Vietnam. We don't know the real number because of poor record keeping and because the people in charge didn't pay as much attention to women. And yet thousands of women served in intelligence and clerical jobs and as nurses and entertainers. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, the women of the Vietnam War. In the 1960s, a war was still a pretty strange place to find an American woman. What brought them there, and why did they sign up to serve? Barbara Lilly volunteered with the Red Cross in 1968. She went to Vietnam because she thought it was her turn to go. I wanted to go to Vietnam for a multitude of reasons. Um, one of them was that it was the women's lib time was coming, and I seriously believed that if I wanted equal rights, I should have equal responsibilities. A lot of my friends, male friends, were terrified of the draft, and if I funked a class, all I had to do was answer to my parents, but their flunking out of college could have been a matter of life and death. Another thing was I was a Kennedy kid. Ask not. I was raised Catholic. Kennedy was Catholic. What your country can do for you. And he asked what we could do for our country. Ask what you can do for your country. So this really got to me too. And I recognized the importance of our servicemen because I was born in 1945. And for as long as I could remember, at some point or another, our country was at war. So it kind of felt like it was my turn. Vietnam actually was my first time living away from home, so when I took a bite, I took a really big bite. And Kelsey, a librarian who joined the Army's Special Services, saw Vietnam as a chance for adventure. So when those recruiters came to the library school and I found out there was a library program in Vietnam, I just couldn't wait to volunteer. The special services people were anxious to inform me that no special services person had died from hostile fire. They had only died in plane crashes and vehicle accidents. <laughs> so I said, yeah, okay, that's fine. <laughs> I know that that seems incomprehensible, but the idea that I might be injured or killed, I never even thought about it. And then there was Jane McCarthy. She was in nursing school in Boston in 1967, and she had another reason she enlisted. I was coming home every six months for a funeral for one of my friends because 68, 69 was just a horrible time of the war when so many were dying. And so I debated, I was debating, do I join the anti-Vietnam War demonstrators or do I take care of these guys that have to go? off to war. And that's what I did at the third funeral when I was standing there. I made that decision to go back to Boston and find an Army recruiter and join the Army. 
Jane felt she needed to go and take care of the men who were serving. But she also saw another opportunity. Her parents had forbidden her from going to college. Instead, she was sent to nursing school. And then Jane's father expected her to move back to the small town where she grew up to get married and start a family. The Army for Jane was a way out. I knew in the back of my mind that with the GI Bill that I could then put myself through college after I did these two years in the Army. And this was my way out, to tell you the truth. So one by one, each of these women signed up to do her part. They suited up in camouflage and headed to base camp. Well, that's not exactly how it went. When we picture men in Vietnam or any war we see, combat boots, helmets, fatigues. But for the women, things were different, and many were not appropriately outfitted for the setting. Yeah, the uniforms were really contentious, both for Women's Army Corps and for the Red Cross. This is Heather Sturr, author of Beyond Combat, Women and Gender in the Vietnam War Era. Uh, The expectation originally was that you're wearing skirts, you're wearing pantyhose, and you're wearing pumps all of which is completely impractical in Vietnam, where it is very hot, very humid. You're walking through dusty, muddy, dirty conditions. Women would walk out in their dress uniforms, and a helicopter would come into land and blow up not only dust, but blow up their skirts. And so they're, you know, did to get used to kind of holding your skirt down as if you walk out because you never know if a helicopter is going to be landing. So all of these is really impractical expectations that were placed on women's appearance. Barbara Lilly remembers getting on and off those choppers while trying to remain ladylike in what she calls her bulletproof blues, short powder blue dresses issued by the Red Cross. Meanwhile, Karen Johnson, an Army command information officer, an editor of the Stars and Stripes, and the only woman in her unit ever, had a different experience. I asked the question when I was issued five pair of men's boxer shorts what I was supposed to do with those, and they told me I could use them to shine my boots. I might add that no one shined their boots in Vietnam because we didn't want the other side to see us coming. Who had time to worry about what you look like? Karen remembers long hours flying around the country to distribute almost a million newspapers per week. It was dangerous work. I I did have some fingernail polish shipped over the States and did my own nails and toenails so that if, if I came home with a toe tag, at least my toenails were painted with my toe tag on it. And Kelsey, the librarian, also cared more about function over form, and she quickly shed many of her uniform accessories, for something more practical. The heels got lost practically the week I arrived, and everybody wore sneakers. And we stopped wearing the hose right away, stopped wearing the gloves. We were supposed to wear the hat, but it it was really only the people who were in Saigon or Long Bend that wore the hat because that's where the higher-ups were. And she wasn't issued any protective gear even though the library and nearby areas were rocketed and mortared. I scrounged a helmet, which I actually still have. The civilians were just sent in as if nothing was going to happen to us, as if there was no war going on. Vietnam was the first of the no-front wars. In previous wars, in World War I, World War II, even in Korea, there was a front 
And if you were behind the lines, you were much less likely to have combat action around you. In Vietnam, that wasn't the case. They warned us when we were in cabs in Saigon to be careful to keep the windows rolled up so that so no one threw a grenade into the vehicle. It was a very different kind of war, but they were still trying to fight it by the rules of previous wars. And the women suffered from that more than anyone. Nurses and even donut dollies were issued flak jackets and helmets for protection when necessary. But there seemed to be a strong idea that women serving in Vietnam should dress just like women at home. Both in the military and in the Red Cross, supervisors and and directors of those programs wanted to maintain a gender division. So they wanted to be able to say to the public, yes, we're sending women into a war zone, but they're still women, so it's okay. We're not making them into men. We're not expecting them to act like men or look like men. And so, in fact, we're going to make sure that we preserve their femininity and we preserve what is the kind of mainstream accepted version of femininity, even as we're sending them into a very masculine realm. And also then the notion that, oh my gosh, women could die here too. So that completely throws a wrench into the whole idea that we as men are here protecting women back home. So I think there probably was some kind of psychological impetus there to keep women looking conventionally feminine, even though they were in places that could be mortared and were mortared. And there were other ways this expectation of femininity took form. On several occasions, Jane McCarthy was not so much asked as she was ordered to attend elegant dinners with senior male officers. Yeah, I was ordered to get in a chopper and they would fly me over to the headquarters and then we would have dinner with the generals with silverware and china and candlelight. And I'm like, what am I doing here? It was almost insulting to me. It's like, you know, a pimp and a prostitute almost. Jane didn't think fancy dinners were part of her job description, but her commanding officers disagreed. It was more that I was ordered over there as a woman. It was like they took me out of the nurse's role and put me in the, in the woman thing, said, okay, go be a woman and flirt with the generals for a while. No, no, it made me really mad. I couldn't say to the chief nurse, no, I'm not going to go have dinner with some general. You took orders. You know, after I've heard nurses talk about that they didn't feel safe over there with the men and stuff, and I, I never, I didn't feel that anyone attacked me physically in any way. And at the same time, I had to protect myself. I had to be aware and get myself out of there. That's how I felt. That happened for nurses, that happened for Women's Army Corps personnel, and that happened for donut dollies. Um, That there was kind of an expectation that you would be available to go to the officers' parties, to go on a date with an officer. And women that I talked to, more often than not said, where I faced sexual harassment or being treated a certain way because of how I looked, because I was a woman, it came from the officers. Women with other jobs, like nurses or librarians, 
were often expected to do this kind of entertaining on the side. But for some women, the whole reason they were there was to entertain men. That was exactly the point of the Red Cross program that's called the Supplemental Recreational Activities Overseas Program, or Donut Dollies. That's a reference back to World War I and World War II when the Red Cross sent women volunteers to serve coffee and donuts to American servicemen. They said, you are meant to be a touch of home, and that's what the women were told in their training session. So you're meant to be a touch of home, a reminder to soldiers of their wives, their girlfriends, their mothers, their sisters, kind of the American girl next door. The idea is that reminding of that will make them remember what they're fighting for. You know, they're fighting to preserve the American way of life against communism. They're fighting for their women and girls back home, and this is a reminder of why they're here. If I could think of something that united all of the women that I've interviewed, whether they're nurses, Women's Army Corps, Donut Dollies, it is that desire to at least delay marriage and family. So it really is an interesting tension there in terms of who the women were who went over there and how they were recruited and then what they were meant to symbolize. Donut Dollies played games, served snacks, and offered to listen or a shoulder to lean on. It sounds lighthearted and fun, but it involved long days and emotional encounters. Here's Barbara Lilly again, talking about a night when she, as a donut dolly, was supposed to serve dinner to a large group of soldiers, but something went terribly wrong. There was a group of 80 that went out, and there were only 30 that came back. The rest had either been killed or wounded. And our jeep got there too late, for dinner, but we were able to take them ice cream. So there was one young guy I can remember, he was sitting with his back to the tree and he just had tears streaming down his face. Excuse me. And gradually we just kind of eased over to him. And the magic question for every GI we saw was, hey, where are you from? So we got him talking, and, you know, he wasn't fine, but he wasn't just staring off into space crying. And for years, I could still see his face. And even now, I, I have a vision of exactly how it looked. They felt, I think, forgotten sometimes. And when this young woman shows up who doesn't have to be there, they're like, wow. Maybe I am important to someone. And Kelsey describes what it was like to be the touch of home for these men in the face of such tragedy. Regardless of what was going on, whether we were being attacked, whether somebody we knew had just been killed, you can't break down. You can't cry. You can't get upset. You can't get angry. You're always on positive and smiling and perky, and that takes a toll after a while. So American women were in Vietnam in service to their country and in service to the men fighting there, whether to boost their spirits as a donut dolly or their physical well-being as a nurse. The women took care of soldiers. But Heather Sturr points out there was no mechanism for those women to be taken care of. So it was recognized men can get PTSD, but not generally talked about or understood 
that the nurses could be going through the same thing in their own way. Yes, that's exactly right, that that just wasn't talked about. I think the idea was that fighting on the front lines and seeing your friends be killed in front of you, narrowly escaping death yourself, that's what causes PTSD. But it wasn't recognized that having to be reassuring if a a unit is being brought in, men on stretchers, they've got to get to work and they've got to be assuring the men that they're taking care of that they're going to be okay. Meanwhile, in their own minds and in their own hearts, they're trying to figure out how they process all of these young men, teenage men in some cases, being brought in, dying in their arms or dying on their tables or knowing that they're not going to be able to see again or walk again. It wasn't discussed that this too causes PTSD. We didn't talk about it, which wasn't normal. Because as a nurse, you talk about your patients. You have patient conferences to talk about patients. And in Vietnam, we did not talk about our patients. We didn't talk about how many patients we put in body bags today. We didn't do that. And I remember thinking, I'm going to pay a price for this someday. Jane McCarthy left Vietnam after completing her commitment with the Army Nurse Corps. She took a 26-hour flight squeezed her swollen feet back into her high heels, signed some paperwork, and then a military rep handed her a few thousand dollars and told her, you're out of the army now, you can go home. And that was that. Her tour of duty was over. But I remember looking around at everybody else in civilian clothes and just hustle-bustling around like there was no war going on at all. And just crying like I don't understand what is you know just crying and I remember getting home and sitting on the back step with my father and he didn't know what to do and he just yelled to my mother what she needs is a good meal (laughs) and so I remember thinking oh my I they don't understand they haven't got it I mean I didn't even understand how could I expect them to understand and I often say Coming home was harder than going to Vietnam, and going was pretty difficult. Jane stayed true to her plans and immediately headed off to college. She worked evenings at a hospital. One night, she was working with a student nurse and sent her to take an elderly woman with a broken hip to be x-rayed. So she did, and she came back a little while later, and she was crying. And I said to her, what's wrong with you? And she said, well, she died. And I remember thinking, I hope I just was thinking and didn't say it. You're crying over that? I was just holding a guy in my arms who bled to death from a chest wound two weeks ago. And you're crying over that? And that's when I realized this was not a good place for me to be. It was a very dark, 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 dark time. Jane realizes now that she had classic PTSD. She couldn't sleep. She didn't eat. She had nightmares. Adjusting to civilian life was odd, something that Barbara Lilly, who also spent a year in Vietnam, could relate to. I had been in a sorority, and I had a wonderful group of sorority sisters, but what was interesting was that somehow I had changed. I was planning a wedding because I came home in March, and we were married in May, but it wasn't is important to me to worry about China and silver and all those things. I just kind of felt like a fish out of water because I felt so 
disconnected. A lot has changed for women since Vietnam, when the last donut dolly left a military base in 1972. Women are no longer serving just to support the men. They now serve side by side with them. But Heather Stir cautions that, culturally, society still isn't really ready for women in the war zone. There still are these ideas that compartmentalize women into one box and then men into another. And we see that in debates over whether or not women should be armed for combat. The Defense Department has said that, yes, they can be. We're still discussing that. Like, is this right? Can they physically take it? Are their male comrades going to be distracted by their presence? So even though women have achieved much more ground in the military now compared to 40 years ago, uh, there still are these conversations about should they be there serving alongside men? And a lot of what is around the debates over women in combat is this idea that suddenly women are going to be put in a place that they've never been before and it's going to completely upend what um, our, our thoughts about what it is and, and who does it. But I think if we think about combat and we think about nurses and the trauma that comes out of that experience, women have been there at least since the Vietnam War. I'm not sure happy is the right word, but... The reasons I went was to support the guys. I feel like I did that. I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. And the librarian says she now gets emails from guys telling her they used her libraries and how much it meant that someone cared enough to provide that service in Vietnam. Still, she says it's not enough. People have no idea that any women were in Vietnam. If they have some idea that there were women there, it was only nurses. There were 67 American women killed in Vietnam. The eight nurses, the military women who died, they're on the wall in D.C., but all the rest of those women were civilians, and virtually no one knows about them. I absolutely think women have been ignored. The guys were ignored by the VA, but the women were even more ignored. Karen Johnson, the Stars and Stripes editor, still has to explain to people that she's not wearing her husband's bronze star, that she actually earned it in Vietnam herself. Shortly after Karen returned from Vietnam in 1972, she joined a lawsuit fighting for back pay, and she won. Uh, men who were serving in combat over there, their wives could continue to live on base or off-base housing, and they still drew their assistance payment. That did not apply to women. Even though women were marrying their husbands back in the state like mine was, I didn't get any housing allowance. Eventually, I think I got around $10,000 back for pay that they had withheld. Because thousands of women serving in Vietnam were civilians, Veterans Affairs benefits were also largely restricted to men, which Ann Kelsey became keenly aware of when the VA started testing vets for exposure to Agent Orange. So then I started researching it. I read enough that I decided, okay, um, I'm not going to take a chance on having kids. So I had my tube side. I know a lot of Vietnam vets, men and women, who have children with severe disabilities, not to mention what the people in Vietnam are suffering through. 
Yes, it was a hard decision, but I feel strongly that it was the right one. And all the civilians are totally on their own in how they deal with that. Of course, veteran status doesn't provide immunity. Jane McCarthy says Agent Orange exposure likely caused the cancer diagnosis in her best friend about 10 years ago. She was also an Army nurse. When the wounded came in, we had to cut off their uniforms, and we never wore gloves there. So we were exposed, if they were exposed, to the Agent Orange. And so anyway, Chrissy said, she has this leukemia. They did all the chemo and the bone marrow transplant. And then I got a call from Tom from the hospital saying that they had just told Chris and him that there was nothing else that they could do. She died a couple of days later. A memorial dedicated to all the women who served in Vietnam was erected on the National Mall in 1993. Jane McCarthy didn't realize at the time just how meaningful having that memorial would be. She remembers marching down the street in Washington for its dedication, holding a banner for the 95th Evacuation Hospital, where she had worked in Vietnam. And the veterans, the soldiers, were lined up on the side of the road in their wheelchairs, and, and every once in a while you'd hear, that's my hospital, oh, you took care of me. I guess maybe it was when I started to realize how important I was to them. I wonder if we knew when we were doing that that it would have such a healing effect on all of us. Because even today, and we're 25 years now, every Veterans Day and every Memorial Day in the morning, we go down and we tell our stories. And then we have a candlelight vigil the night before. So all of that, to me, is healing work. Jane spoke to a small crowd there on Memorial Day in May of 2018. She talked about her days as a nurse in Da Nang and ended with a poem written by Vietnam veteran Daryl Nichols. Here's part of it. Listen now, I have a story to tell about some women who lived through hell. They fought in a war in a special way, 12, sometimes 16 hours a day. This is a story of pain and strife and of men's agony and fight for life. She will tell you stories of blood and pain that in her mind will always remain. How many hands in the night did she hold while a young voice cried out, I'm so cold. How many faces does she still see like the memories we have both you and me. Let us not forget the stories they tell, for they were our sisters who lived through hell. Thank you. This is With Good Reason, We'll be right back.
Welcome back. This is With Good Reason. Thousands of women did their part in Vietnam, but thousands more back home were also deeply affected by the war. The wives and girlfriends of the men who fought lived with daily excruciating uncertainty. And then once the men returned, or didn't, these women faced a whole new tragedy. One of them, Emma Violin Sanchez, shares her story of Vietnam, beginning with what was then the all-women Radford College. It was February 1962. If somebody would have a date, the dorm mother or the person that was in charge downstairs would say, like Sandy Watkins, you have a color in the parlor. And so my friend, Sandy Watkins, said, Oh, Emma, I'm not ready. Go, go downstairs and meet with these guys, a blind date. So I don't know. You tell me what he looks like. And I said, okay, okay, I'm going. I'm going to go. And then I went and and then I found out I met this guy. His name was Al Giddings and he was so cute and so nice. And so I was talking to him and we were just chatting. Then I excused myself. I went running upstairs and said, Sandy, oh, he is so cute. He is so nice. You are so lucky. So after the date, Sandy comes up and I say, how was it? Tell me, tell me. And then she says, oh, he was really nice. His name is Al, but he talked to me a lot about you. That's how our courtship started, Emma and Al. We got married on July 22nd, 1967. After the wedding, we went to Yuma, uh, Arizona, Yuma Proving Grounds. It was, for me, it was an ideal, (laughs) just living with my husband, furnishing our first place where we were going to live, and then enjoying each other and uh, the friends. But then this was during the Vietnam War. And so the biggest fear during that time was who was going to be called. It was during lunch. I remember he looked very serious. And so I realized he said, I have to go to Vietnam in December. Maybe you could get your master's. So after he left, I remember it was snowing, and with a good friend, we drove back to Radford. Radford was like uh, my home. Al and I would write to each other every single day. He was a very positive man, so he would not share any bad news with me. The only thing he would say to me that he would not um, wish to his worst enemy that would go to Vietnam. Al and I planned to get together on August 27th in Hawaii. And then um, on August 22nd, you know, I was packing so that I could go to Hawaii. And somebody came to my room and said, there's someone that wants to visit you. And I said, who? And they said, well, it's somebody with uniform, maybe your husband. And I said, no, it can't be my husband. My husband is in Vietnam. And then he told me, I regret to inform you that on August 22nd, Albert Hugh Giddings uh, died with a gunshot wound and non-causes. 
That's what he said. And he was just standing there. And I was looking at him. And I was looking at my dorm mother. And I said, oh no. It was just devastating. I remember my aunt Mecha came the next day to visit me at Radford. She said, come on, Emma. And I said, I have to go and get a black dress. I have to go and get a black dress. And she said, why? It's the summer. There's no black dresses. And I said, no, I have to get a black dress. My husband died. I have to get a black dress. And so I went and I got a black dress and I wore a black dress and People were saying, why are you wearing black? And I said, my husband died. And so I went to my dorm, and it was just so hard for me to see my suitcase with the presents, with all the things that I was taking to go to Hawaii. And, and just, uh, I don't know, it was just, it required a lot of strength. When somebody dies like that, you get informed. Yes, you get a personal uh, whatever. But then suddenly I had to make so many decisions with his parents to find out where will he be buried. So too many decisions for me to make in such a short time. And I just didn't want to do anything. But then Al's parents wanted me to be you know, just to be a little more optimistic or, or something. I mean, everybody talked about how Jackie Kennedy was so strong when I, when Jack Kennedy died. I, I said, I'm no Jackie Onassis. I mean, you know, I'm just... So if I have to cry, I have to cry, and I have to, you know... I just wanted to mourn, like my traditions in Bolivia. In Bolivia, we mourn. We, When somebody dies, then things stop. People don't work. We just stop and mourn and, and have visitations and things like that. But here it's, it's a different way. And I remember him all, all the time. When somebody dies, they don't go away. And every single one of those of the people, you know, of the human beings that die in a war, there's a family that is also wounded. While Emma was left to grieve, many other wives were left in a hellish limbo their husbands were prisoners of war, hundreds of men taken for months or years and tortured. That was new during the Vietnam War, and for a long time, Americans didn't really know it was happening. That was until an unlikely sorority of war wives stepped out of the shadows. Heath Lee is the author of The League of Wives, the untold story of the women who took on the U.S. government to bring their husbands home from Vietnam. The way that the women learned about this was almost always the same. You would see a black sedan in your driveway, and this was an immediate sign that something was really badly wrong. And there was a protocol that was followed where you would have an officer 
and a chaplain generally come in the house, often accompanied by your best friend, say a colonel's wife or a sergeant major's wife that you knew, but it would always be those same three people, the black sedan, and then they would tell you what they thought had happened. And at this time, most people, even politicians, didn't know what a POW was. But before long, hundreds of wives would be forced to learn, and they needed the rest of the country to learn, too. Was Sybil Stockdale the first one to actually break silence? My husband is a POW and I am going public? Yes. In 1968, she went to the San Diego Union Tribune and gave the first interview saying, the North Vietnamese are torturing everyone, my husband's a prisoner, do something about it. So Sybil went to the paper and TV and the media rallied to her call. Here she is speaking to Barbara Walters and Hugh Downs on the Today Show in January 1970. We are trying to make the world aware of the desperate plight of the prisoners. Possibly most important right now is to have a record of the concern of the American people. Just a postcard or a letter saying, I am concerned Mm -hmm. about the American prisoners of war. It would probably be uh, one of the most helpful things they can do. He will publicize it. Jane Denton became another prominent activist for POWs. It was her husband in a video message released by his captors who famously blinked the letters of the word torture in Morse code. Jane and Sybil were very different but very effective advocates, but neither of them had been prepared for this. Jane was very much a Southern belle, very Southern in her ways, hated conflict, was the last person on earth who wanted to be an activist. She wanted to be a wife and mother and a hostess. And and she was really what you think of when you think of the perfect military wife. That was Jane. And she was also highly diplomatic. That turned out to be what set her apart from some of her other colleagues is her diplomacy, her ability to mobilize people. She was one of the biggest advocates for POWs and MIAs and went to great lengths to work with different contingencies to bring her husband home. Those different contingencies proved vital. Sybil and the other wives of POWs were talking to the media, to congressmen, to Henry Kissinger even. But they couldn't talk to the people they wanted to hear from the most. Their husbands. One of the women told me, one of these POW wives said, we would do a deal with the devil if we had to, to get information through to our men. And they sort of did when they turned to an unlikely alliance. So these are very traditional hat and glove military wives, very prim and proper. Not the kinds of women who would typically associate with anti-war activists. I think the POW wives, a lot of them did not get along with the women that I studied. This is Jessica Frazier. She studies a group of women anti-war activists. What got me to study this in the first place was just this idea that these women who were middle-aged, who had young children at home, were traveling to a war zone where there was active bombing sometimes. And why were they doing that? They wanted to know what exactly their government was doing. And they wanted to stop the war. In 1965, when Johnson first sent troops to South Vietnam and started the air war over North Vietnam, there were women in the organization Women's Strike for Peace in particular who were concerned about what was going on in Vietnam. And 
the North Vietnamese invited them on to Hanoi at that time in order to meet with the Vietnamese Women's Union. The North Vietnamese government did not approve visas for reporters, and it fell to anti-war activists who could get their visas approved by the North Vietnamese government to travel to Hanoi to find out what was going on. Once in Hanoi, the anti-war activists started building relationships with Vietnamese women who were also advocating for peace. The Women's Strike for Peace women often used maternal language. They represented themselves as mothers who were simply concerned for their children. They were concerned that their children were going to be sent to Vietnam to fight and that they would die there. The Vietnamese women used similar language, saying that they were concerned about the Vietnam War as well because they were mothers of soldiers and their, and their sons were going to die uh, in this war, and, and so they wanted American women to help them stop the war. The trust that the anti-war activists had built in North Vietnam gave them access to the prisoners of war that no one else had. They were able to set up a mail exchange and the war wives back home were finally allowed to start writing to their captive husbands. Here's Heath Lee again. And that's when the ladies that I've researched started coding letters to their husbands with secret messages. So that was quite dangerous, and uh, the women were basically Jane Bonds doing all kinds of spy work for the government. A lot of information was passed that way. That was one of the very successful ways they were able to also get an accounting for who was there, who was dead, who was missing in action. After almost eight years of captivity and torture, Jim Stockdale and Jerry Denton made it home. Jerry Denton is the first one off the first plane And he gives this amazing speech you can still find on YouTube saying, we have been through a difficult time, but we're so happy we could serve our country. Serve our country under difficult circumstances. And at the end, he's almost crying, and he says, God bless America. God bless America. God bless America. It's one of the most moving things I've ever seen. How did these women respond when their husbands came home? Were they happy or was it tough? You know, I think they all responded differently based on their personality. Jane Denton always wanted to be a mother and a wife. And so she, it was a lot easier for her to go back to a more submissive role, a more role where her husband kind of ruled the roost a bit more. Sybil Stockdale, on the other hand, who had been the big leader of this whole POW MIA movement, was in contact with Kissinger and Nixon all the time and was really good at it. This was like a career she would have excelled as a diplomat or as a you know political leader. It was really hard for her. She had episodes of depression post-war because I don't I think she didn't feel as useful anymore. Heath Lee is the author of The League of Wives, the untold story of the women who took on the US government to bring their husbands home from Vietnam. Figuring out how to act and who you are as the wife of a Vietnam soldier is something Marion Fay Novak can relate to. Marion's the author of Lonely Girls with Burning Eyes, a wife recalls her husband's journey home from Vietnam. Marion's husband, a Marine, left for Vietnam about a year after they were married. As anti-war sentiment grew, Marion, a new mother, felt very alone and she struggled to glean anything she could from the letters of a quiet military man she didn't really know very well. 
He'd asked me out in the fall, and I didn't really care for him. He was too quiet. One day he caught me by surprise in a rainstorm, and I got a call that night, and he said, you spoke to me today. Does that mean you'll go out with me again? And I did. And in those days, the Marines had all white for their summer-spring uniform, white hat, white gloves, white shoes, white socks, and those gold globe and anchors. And I saw him coming up the walk, and I opened the door, and there he was, standing against all that green. (laughs) He was like a knight in shining armor. It wasn't long after that that he proposed. We used to play bridge a lot at the student union, and people would gossip about their hometowns, and somebody mentioned that somebody had been killed in Vietnam. And I thought, wow, what's that, a war? I knew nothing. I knew nothing except from friends of mine who were very active in the anti-war movement. They were very interested in educating me, but it didn't make sense what they were saying because Dave isn't stupid and he's a good man and he was going to go and fight. His argument was always, if I don't go, Marion, somebody will go in my place. They're not going to take one less. He said, I'll do my part. My parents were living in Fresno at the time, and so we were visiting with them right before. We had to leave, and something happened. We went into a quiet little bar, just, just the two of us there, and there was one man, and he told Dave, he said, good luck, just like that, good luck. And he patted him on the shoulder, and he went over and paid for our drinks, and I knew that wasn't good. That was probably not good. (laughs) So. When Dave left, he left from California, from Travis Air Force Base in May of 1967. And I can still see, right now, the men filing up the steel steps onto the plane. And I remember thinking, some of them won't come back. I hope it's the others, not my husband. My daughter, Jeannie, was born July 25, 1967. When I called the Red Cross, I asked them, how long will it take my husband to find out that he's a father? She said it would be 17 hours. So from the moment I heard that, time became a very odd thing. I didn't know any moment whether my husband was dead or whether he was alive. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know if I was still a wife. I didn't know if I was a young widow. I didn't know who I was. Berkeley, of course, was is exploding. It was a, a leader in, in this anti-war movement. I finally learned not to tell people uh, that my husband was in Vietnam. I didn't want the kind of support that you know, we, we think he's a great guy. We just, we just hate what he is, you know? So um, I just stayed away from people. And one thing the military, uh, the Marine Corps had done that I felt was, was not good, they did treat wives like the old saying that they used to throw around. If the Marines wanted you to have a wife, they would, you know, they'd issue you one. 
I wrote every day. Dave wrote much less often. My husband is not a talker, but I was still very, very frustrated because the letters hadn't been more detailed. You wouldn't have known they were war if you didn't see the red dirt on them. And I don't think he understood what was going on at home. He thought it was luxury. He thought I had movies to go to. I had air conditioning and a cold Coke. He didn't understand that none of that mattered, that I was in Vietnam in my head with him all the time, where he could rest once in a while because he knew he was safe. I had to worry every minute. Every minute I was awake. Every minute. I remember asking him, did you kill anybody? And he said, I couldn't see for sure. I know the depth of it now. And when I read the letters over 20 years after he wrote them, I can read them now and see what he's not saying. I can feel what he's not telling me. I knew a woman who, of course, had the casualty officer come to the door. I know that it was a terrible, terrible thing, but she couldn't get past it either. She never remarried. Her heart was just broken, and, you know, she couldn't recoup enough to go on. I had another friend who had a visit from the casualty officer. She went on. She remarried. I told my husband once, he asked, he asked me something about what are we going to do, and, and later he told me the advice I gave him was the best I ever gave him, and that was this. I said, we're going to love the war. We're going to love it. It has made us who we are. We met some of the best people in our lives. We know what we can and cannot do. We know what we can and cannot stand. A lot of people never find out, but we did. And I said, we're going to love it. And that satisfied him. I don't know if it satisfies me, but I believe it. And I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that he lived. I'm grateful that he did what he thought he had to do. And I'm grateful that I'm still here. That was Marion Fay Novak, author of Lonely Girls with Burning Eyes, A Wife Recalls Her Husband's Journey Home from Vietnam. This is part of our special series on the Vietnam War. Voices of Vietnam was made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods, and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>